Hey guys, before we go to Christie tonight, part two, which is just uh, took so much courage and bravery and we're gonna get right to it. I just wanna tell you about something that's happening here at campus, the church studio on Sunday, uh, July 29th at 12 p.m. We're having our annual heart in the parking lot. What that consists of is open water baptisms for anybody who wants to participate. Show up here, we'll have a fun outside. And we also barbecue uh, some wieners and buns and condiments and uh, chips and things like that are here. And it's just the fellowship time, uh, whatever you want, however you want to be baptized. It's open water. You want someone to do it for you, we will. You want someone in your family to do it for you, they can. It's just about celebrating Jesus. So I just wanted to let you all know, those of you who live in this vicinity or might, who might be passing through July 29th, Sunday, 12 p.m., uh, there'll be no meat service that day. We're going to uh, have our open water baptisms. So join us then, and now let's go to the show. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We are part two tonight, a continuation of our discussion with my uh, friend, Christy Johnson, going all the way back to our teen years in uh, Orange County, California, and now here we are. Uh, we've aged so beautifully together, handsome beautiful adults, and uh, we're both still faithful, and we're both still attending. Oh my God. I have a testimony Stop. of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you. Actually, that's not the case. Things have changed. You know the story, my story, but we had a, uh, we had a big revelation last week toward the end of our conversation with Christy, and so we're going to take it from here. So go back if you could. Go back to Ogden Provo, or Provo, Ogden Provo, uh, and just tell us what was going on. What okay. happened to you? You're the oldest daughter. Right. So probably everything started with you. Right. So it's, I'll, I'll give you an example. So it went Kevin, this is the six kids Kevin, Christy, Kim, Corey, Kyle, Kathy. Oh, okay. Boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. So okay. we're the Brady Bunch. Got it. I'm Marsha. All right, Marsha. So we'll, that's how you can understand who I stand in the family. So actually going back to when I was a little girl and living in Ogden, um, about six years old, a little bit younger around those six years old in my memories, um, on one event that happened, um, my brother Kevin and I uh, and Kim were playing in the backyard and Kevin told Kim to throw rocks at me and I was really upset. So I tattled and went to my dad and said, you know, he's throwing rocks. And uh, so Kevin's all, oh, I didn't say that. And, you know, it was something stupid that kids would do. And my dad uh, told me and Kevin to go in the bedroom. And um, he made us take our clothes off, strip completely naked. And he had us bend over and he took out his belt and he had a way he took it off. And he started whipping us back and forth. Me, Ke or Kevin, me, Kevin, all over. And I mean, our backs, our legs, the belt was so long that it came around and hit my genitals, like my genital area and Kevin's and beat us. And he kept saying, who's lying, who's lying? And, I, you know, we're both screaming to the top of our lungs because, you know, we're in pain. 
And he wouldn't stop. He was like enraged and he was almost like happy about it. It was weird. He got some kind of pleasure from it. But I remember that being so horrible. And um, Kevin and I had blood on us. I mean, he beat us bad. And the only thing that stopped him was someone rang the doorbell. So my dad uh, said, don't leave. And he got the doorbell. When he came back, he was very calm. And he had a, a jar of some kind of ointment. And he said, you know, I'm an, um, and, and my brother Kevin at that point said, Dad, I'm the one who lied. And my dad said, oh, Kevin, thank you so much for telling the truth. And he kneeled down and he took this ointment and he started rubbing my brother's genital area. And my brother and I made eye contact. And that uncomfortableness of someone being violated like that. And my dad came over to me and started to rub me and I, I got really angry. And I'm all, no, no, don't touch me. And uh, my dad stopped, but then he went back to my brother and he just was rubbing his genitals. He didn't rub our backs, our legs. He just focused right on the genitals. And so that happened. And then um, Kevin and I shared a bunk bed downstairs. And I slept on the bottom. Kevin slept on the top. And my dad would come into our room at night. And he would be breathing heavily. And he would be wearing only his garments, his temple garments. And he would uh, start you know, touching my body and inserting fingers and, you know, things, and he sexually was molesting me. Um, and then when he finished, um, he, you know, he left the room, and Kevin would hang his hand down from the bunk bed so that I could hold it till I fell asleep. And that happened quite a bit. Kevin, have re uh, memories of any of that as as an Kev adult? Kevin and I, uh, I remember trying to talk to him once, and Kevin said, "I have no memory from the time I was twelve and under. Wow. Literally, no memory wow. of his youth." Hmm. And um, so, and nobody knows that that Kevin and I were. I mean, it's in the thing that I was, but um, Kevin was as well. Um, so anyway, my dad, this was a, a regular thing that he would do at night with me, come in and do stuff to me. Um, and it always seemed like it went further, you know, and it was always the same ammo garments. Um, so my mom had talked to us. Uh, my mom had walked in. My, my little sister, Corey, had just been born and was a brand new baby, and my mom walked in and my dad was molesting Corey as a newborn baby oh, and walked in on him doing that. Um, of course, that was upsetting to my mother. And um, I started acting out sexually. Um, my mom had a best friend, and she had a son that was my age. We were both six. And when he would come over, uh, we would go in the bedroom. 
we would go in closets behind the garage and just go to town on each other. And I just thought it was normal. It felt great. Didn't know anything different. We were in the closet one time and my mom found us and, you know, yelled and screamed at me and called me names and made me sit in this chair and tell her everything that happened and what was I doing and it was all my fault and, you know, and so, you know, that's how the conversation about my dad started. Like, well, dad does this, you know, and why that's bad, you know, and so. so you actually told your mom at that young age. Yes. Well, because I was getting blamed. I didn't know it was wrong. Sure. And so um, my mom said, too, that she had an idea that that was going on, plus walking in on him with the baby, you know. So um, she also talked to Kevin. And so um, we went to the bishop. My mom took us down to the church, but she went in and saw the bishop um, and met with him and told him what my dad was doing. And... My dad was with the church education system at this point, um, teaching seminary. And so the bishop told her that it was hard for him to even comprehend that my dad would do something like that. And he said, you know that he will be fired and lose his job if this gets out. So you guys won't have money to take care of the family. And most importantly, it'll make the church look bad. This will be a bad thing for the church. And I'm going to ask you not to go to the police. And so uh, she didn't go to the police. That's kind of the central theme. And that's theme. the normal. That's the normal. That's the central theme with a big problem with what your story is, is that your mom was told to keep it in-house and don't go to the police. Yes. Yeah. One question, and it's a, little, it's a little early, but still I think it's timely. What do you think about, what was going on in your mom's mind? Was she just overwhelmed with uh, religious thoughts and ecclesiastical rightness? Well, I, you know, she was a convert to the church and she was very devoted to the church. I think my mom, and, and you'll know as I tell you more information, my mom was also abused by my father. So it was the Mormon culture because she truly believed in the prophet, the church teachings, that the bishop was like a god, you do what he tells you to do. That's very serious. Um, so I think at that point she had trouble in her conscience with one, with protecting, you know, and when I finally talked to her years later before she passed, and got more details from her, um, you know, she felt the weight of the world on her shoulders mm. and did not know how to handle it. Mm. And, you know, she, when she told me when, when my dad was signed on with the church education system, they're told specifically, you can't make the church look bad. Mm. You know, that's why you don't hear of them ever getting divorced you ever hear institute teacher getting divorced or BYU? Yeah, that was just unheard of. And um, so of all people, they want to keep that very close. But yeah, she looked at the bishop as a, an authority of the church speaking on God's behalf. So I think she was conflicted. That's how she explained it before she died, very much. Um, since we're on that topic, sometimes people really get 
accusatory toward a mom who doesn't do more right. and they're angry and they even consider them participants yes yeah do you have that in you toward your mom I I do in a lot of ways um, because I'm different than my mother um, but I also know the inside of what happened to her um, I think as she was dying my mom never really liked me when we were growing up she always would make derogatory comments to me you know I always should lose at least five pounds or I should always you know maybe you shouldn't act that way maybe you should try to be a little more feminine or you know that oh that's you know or she would make comments you know just a lot of comments and I'll tell you more as our the story progresses what those comments were that let me really know that she knew what was going on and so uh, I had a lot of resentment towards her and I was embarrassed and I was angry that as a mother um, I don't care what it would take me as this mother I would live on the streets to get my kid away from an abuser but that's me and I'm not her and so I made peace with that when she passed and a lot of the the information that I was unaware of of her true knowledge of all of it came out right before she died while we were literally bathing her and taking care of her on her deathbed and so after that information was given to me I was angry and I literally had to ask Heavenly Father to let me look at her as not my mother but as a human being so that I could continue to take care of her in a loving, respectful way before she passed. So when she passed, I made peace with that. That's really beautiful. So, uh, Ogden, he's molested, he's He's molesting, you. the bishop's been told. Right after that, we moved to another house. Now it was weird, because we're going to the same elementary school, which was Gramercy Elementary, and where I went to, I think, kindergarten, first grade, or kindergarten. What's weird is we were living in this house when I was four years old in Ogden. Then we moved to this other house when I was five and six. And then we moved right after that was reported to my dad. Then all of a sudden we moved to this other house. Hmm. So we're in another ward. And let me back up too. When I was living in the, the house when I was six, my friend across the street um, died of leukemia one of my best buddies, mm. Charlie Bodley. Mm. And uh, he died during that time. So I had to deal with the death of my little buddy mm -hmm. and was dealing with all this bull crap at home as well. Mm. So I, my emotions were all like death and you know all this stuff going on at home. So then right after my dad was reported, we moved to this other house and these are all rental homes. And I don't know about you, but moving is a pain. Oh. So you take all these children and all these belongings, and why are you moving around in this city? And your dad's, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was weird. So all of a sudden he's at this other seminary building, and that's where I started to go to, I was told to go to the seminary building after school every day and be in his classes. Mm. Um, but what was also happening is uh, at times, my dad would take me into his office when nobody was in the building and would close the door and have me sit on his desk chair and would molest me sexually. Wow. Yeah. 
and I could describe his desk, I can describe the ceiling, I can describe everything, you know, of what I was trying to concentrate on when my body was being violated. You have a very good memory. Extremely, mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, and also I want to bring up on one occasion, you know, my dad, when he was a seminary teacher at that building, he was working with what they called with troubled youth. So these kids were either in foster care or they had been in the juvenile system, but he specifically was assigned to teach these kids who had problems. Mm -hmm. And my mom came in early to pick my dad up um, at the building and she found him in his office and opened the door and one of the female students was on my dad's lap. Whoa. And my mom's like, you know, what the age is this? And my dad like, tried to explain, like, you know, I counsel with her. She came from this abusive background. I'm trying to show her love. You know, and my mom's like, you're full of, you know. And so um, anyway, um, my mom made another report and this time made a report to a gentleman with the last name of McAllister, who I met with and talked to, and I could describe him to a T. Um, he was an older gentleman, bald, um, and I thought in my head, uh, I remembered him being a bishop, but I also remember I thought he was like some kind of boss over my dad. Mm. That was, as a kid, that's what I my thought was, okay, great, now my mom's telling my dad's boss what's going on, right? So then, all of a sudden, my dad, we're moved and we're moved to Provo, Utah now. And my dad is made a teacher in the religion department of Brigham Young University. Mm. And so during all that time, we had talked about how we got to go to all the games and the, uh, the inside swimming pools. Well, my dad knew that I loved to do that. And on occasion would take me alone to his office mm. and I, I think it was the David O. McKay building, not quite sure, but it was, we went down some stairs and there was his little office with two desks. It was very cramped, but he actually shared an office with uh, Joseph McConkie. Mm -hmm. And um, he's actually in the yearbook, I think, I, mean, I don't know if I mentioned that, mm -hmm. in the yearbook there in the faculty picture. Mm -hmm. So my dad made a big deal out of that, like, you know, this is Bruce our son or you know, it's the McConkie family. So that was a big deal. So that was like, oh, hey, cool. But when my dad would take me in there and, you know, close the door and isolate me in there, once again, it was on the chair. I could describe everything in the office of what was going on during the time of him touching me. Was he, um, if, this, if I get too far, because I go far uh, in the conversation, uh, was he talking to you during this time? Was he um, saying anything to you? Like, I'm doing this to you because, uh, was it silent? I mean, what's he saying to this little girl? Well, it wasn't silent. The things that I do remember, because he said a lot of the same things through the years, because mm. it, it wasn't just when I was little. He would always try to tell me it wasn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. Oh I just want you to know this isn't real. And so in my mind, you know, I'm thinking, oh, then what is this? So, you know, survivors have a way of going into either disassociation or they try to concentrate on the ceiling or, 
you know, you do anything you can to not be present in your body as it's being violated. And yesterday, I know I mentioned it, the press conference is at times I would literally picture Jesus and, and God like holding my hand because I was just, I always knew in, in this little heart of mine that God loved me and I knew he was real. And I said, can you just hold my hand? I, I, I knew somehow he couldn't stop it. I had this understanding. So it, as it went on, I would just, in my mind, hold on to him. Please remind me, uh, probably in part three, to get back to that topic, which so many uh, atheists, humanists will glom onto, that how could you believe in a God or a Jesus who's allowing you to go through this? So let's get, we'll get back to that. Sure. Oh, yeah, because that's, it's fascinating uh, to me that there are people of faith like you, um, because there aren't many. And, uh, and that, I think it really speaks well to um, what your perspective will be. I mean, it's, so he's saying it's not real, and then you're at BYU. We're it's BYU. happening at BYU. <laughs> yes, and my mom um, is also hearing things, too, about a female student, you know. Cause so there's suspicion students. he has been doing this to uh, other kids, other, other kids people, outside students, the family. Yeah. Um, so there's that talk, but also my mom knew, she still knew my dad was molesting us because he was also molesting me at home. So it wasn't just at BYU, it was at home as well. And she knew. And so my mom was very, very angry. And when she would get angry at my dad, um, I'm going to tell you one event <clears throat> that happened again later on. Um, my parents were in a huge argument and they argued a lot. During one argument in particular, my mom went into the kitchen and she took out a knife, a big butcher knife, and she stuck it to her throat. And she walked back in through the living room and you know, her and my dad are yelling and she's like, I'm gonna kill myself, I can't deal with this anymore. And I was sitting there on the floor and she made direct eye contact with me mm. as she's screaming saying this okay so I'm sitting outside the bathroom so she goes in the bathroom door she locks it and she's like I'm gonna kill myself she's screaming she's hysterical and I sit outside that bathroom door praying for her and being God like don't let my mom die mm. and as I look back to the living room there's my dad sitting in the chair of the couch reading the newspaper Wow as if it's not even happening. And here I am as a child, just terrified wow. that my mom's gonna kill herself. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what my mom was going through. And she had times of such anger, like their argument at one time, she was telling my dad, you're not God, you know, you think you're everything. Mm. And he goes, no, you pray through me Whoa. to get to God. And I remember being very confused by that because mm. I'm like, we got to pray through our husbands? Like, mm. it was weird. And so I was very confused by that. And um, so my mom ended up going to BYU and showing up in my dad's class and yelling and was talking to his bosses. And when nobody would listen to her, she would go up the ladder 
of whoever wow. was in charge. And she was going to make sure he is molesting my kids. He's molesting my daughters. My kids are being assaulted. Somebody do something. And she would make this huge scene. And at the time, Dallin H. Oaks was the president of BYU mm. at, during that time. Mm. So did he know? I don't know for sure. I can't say that. But how could he not? Mm. He's over the personnel there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my mom would tell anybody and made such a scene uh, that my dad, all of a sudden, was transferred out of BYU mm. and sent to California to be an institute teacher. Now, to me, that's a step down if you think about it. Mm -hmm. You're a professor at BYU, mm -hmm. you're teaching there, it's prestigious, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're going to send you out to California to teach at the Institute, mm -hmm. which is across the street from the college yeah. or a community college. Come on, yeah. right? So they knew something, but there was a move made. Mm -hmm. So we moved to California. So your mom, really, what you just said really does support uh, the fact that she was sold out to the institution, mm -hmm. but she wasn't a wilting flower. No. She went and, and demanded within the institutional within the authority, right. do something. Right. And she would go up the ladder of authority because she wanted someone to listen. Gosh, it's just And I don't think it ever occurred to her because it never occurred to me to go to the police. Mm. You know, yeah. as I, as my, my, it gets further along in the story. So it's that whole social, the, the whole, what do you call it? Culture mm -hmm. of thinking that mm -hmm. this is the authority mm -hmm. that you have to let them know and they will do something, right? Mm -hmm. They got to do something, mm -hmm. you know, he's yeah. hurting, he's sexually assaulting children, yeah. you know? Um, so we get transferred out to California. We're in Glendora now. My dad's put in the bishopric and during the time that I'm there, um, my dad starts telling me these filthy sexual jokes and I'm only like what maybe 12 or 10 or 11 and 12 that age and he um, tells me some really foul things that include babies and sexual stuff and he's getting a thrill that I'm disgusted like I'm almost vomiting mm. you know what I mean mm. and I'm thinking to myself why is he telling me this you know well what he was prepping me for was he started forcing me to perform oral sex on him so he was prepping me for that with these stories wow. and so at that point in my life I started to wet the bed mm. and uh, I think I was in sixth grade at the time mm. so I started just peeing myself and wetting myself mm. and I was a mess yeah and I did not want to grow boobs I didn't want to you know my mom's like oh you should wear a bra now and you know you're gonna start your period and mm. you know it was like oh you know let's put on some makeup and I'm like oh no 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 I don't want to be a grown-up mm. I do not want to grow up mm. and at one time um, in my sixth grade year my midway through, because I always had long, beautiful, dark, mm -hmm. straight hair. Mm. My mom was enraged at one point and cut my hair to my head. Wow. Now she claims, oh, you have lice. I'm going to, but I think she was trying to make me unattractive to my dad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she cut my hair to my head and when it came out, started to grow out during the summer, 
it grew out really kind of kinky and mm. fuzzy, so I didn't have that long, beautiful hair anymore. I had this fuzzy hair, and you mm. can see it in my school picture, mm. my seventh grade picture. It's kind of, mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do with it, right? Mm. So I went from this cute little, you know. Mm. So um, that was very traumatic for me to lose my hair like that. Mm. And so I went into seventh grade and, you know, and then my dad got transferred now to, oh, let me back up. When we got transferred to Glendora, California, right, from Provo, mm -hmm. Utah, mm -hmm. my dad moved us out to, to Glendora and then he went back for the summer by himself to Utah to finish up his doctorate. Mm. And then as soon as he's finished it up, he drove back out, got us in California, and we went to his graduation at BYU. Mm. And there's pictures of us, him getting his doctor's degree. Mm. And that was a very big deal. Mm. And then we came back to California. I found out years later, because my middle sister, Corey, would have been, well, I'm six years older than her, so if I'm 11, she's five. Mm -hmm. Corey got a really bad infection in her vagina, mm -hmm. like really bad. And my parents, you know, I would help bathe the younger kids and they would, be, they would tell me like, oh, you're probably like putting too much soap on her. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think so. I'm not, you know, concentrating on that area. That's weird. And they go, yeah. And I remember seeing it, it was so inflamed. Mm -hmm. And my mom, we found out later as I grew up as an adult, my mom said that my dad, when he got back from BYU that summer, came home with a sexually transmitted disease, oh. a really bad one. Mm. So in my mind, I started putting two and two together and went, oh my God, he gave Corey something. Because mm. why would a little yeah. kid have that kind of an infection? Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, after that, we get to Westminster and, um, you're in seventh, eighth I'm grade. In, I'm going into eighth grade. So we moved during the summer. We moved to Westminster. So I'm going into eighth grade. And um, when we go to the new house, all of us girls are sharing one bedroom. There's four bedrooms. So Kevin's the older son. So he gets his own bedroom and we hated him for it. <laughs> and I was jealous. And so then uh, us girls all shared one bedroom downstairs. And we all had to share a queen size bed. So I'm 13, I wake up in the middle of the night, and my dad is on this side of the bed, and he's in his garments, and he's unzipped my little sister's uh, pajama robe, and he's molesting her, and he has his penis out, and he's touching her. And I wake up to this, and I'm, holy God, and I don't know what to do, and I'm frozen in complete fear and I'm angry and I'm trying to think what can I do what can I do and so I pretended I was just waking up oh what's going on and my dad's like oh are you guys okay like you were having a nightmare Corey I, is, are you okay Christy and I was like yeah what's going on oh I, I heard Corey screaming as he's zipping up her you know and and so the very next morning I took the bed and I pushed it up against the wall. And I put a little lamp table there with a the lamp. And my goal was to sleep on the outside and put the youngest one in the middle and Corey that he had molested would now sleep against the wall. So if my dad was gonna to touch her, he'd have to go through me. So I spent the next couple of years of my life 
trying to stay awake at night to be prepared for him coming in the room. And so I could hear him because their, uh, their room was upstairs, so I'd listen for the stairs, and I could hear the creaks. So I'd turn on my light um, and read the scriptures. And as long as I was reading my scriptures, he wouldn't make me go back to bed. He'd be like, oh, you need to go to sleep. And I'd be like, doing a seminary project. Oh, all right. You know, if it was homework, no, go to bed, but seminary. So that's what I learned. And, but there were, but I would wake up sometimes and he would be, you know, touching me and having me touch him. And I would be just waking up to that. And I would blame myself. Like, damn it, Chrissy, you know, you fell asleep. Darn it. Why, you know, so I started discovering, okay, what can I do? What else can I do? I, I can't keep staying awake all night. So I got really sick drinking milk. So I decided to start drinking as much milk as I could at night to physically make me ill so that that stomach ache would keep me up so that I would stay up on guard. And it worked. I would throw up and I'd stay awake, but I would be awake, Mm. right? Mm. So I thought I was protecting my sisters at that point, like I had saved them. Mm And then um, when I'm 15, I'm in there doing homework on a Friday or something, Friday afternoon, doing homework in my room, and my parents are arguing, and my dad rips open my door, and he's got this rod in his hand, and he's yelling at my mom, and she's like, you know, calling him names, and he takes this rod, and I stand up, and I'm like, what's going on, you know? And my dad takes the rod and just starts beating me just all over my body and I'm like all I can do is like guard my face and my head you know and my mom's like stop stop and he's like is this what you want Linda is this what you wanted me to do Linda and I'm just screaming at him to stop and he will not stop he's got me all body parts he never stopped until I collapsed on the carpet and as I laid on the carpet in shock, my parents left the room and closed the door and did not come back wow. in the room that night, the rest of the day. So I just stayed in my room, right? And now I'm like welted, I'm beat, I got bruises forming. So the next morning, my dad's siblings show up from out of state and they're all supposed to go to the temple and do a session. My mom goes out there and tells them, I am not going to the temple with you because Kay beat the hell out of Christy yesterday, so I don't feel like I can go to the temple. And they're like, oh, okay. So they all went off to the temple together, and um, come Monday, I go to school, and I purposely dress out for PE. And the reason I do that is because my PE teacher is a bishop in our stake and in our ward building. So he's not only my PE teacher, he is a bishop. So I dress out in my shorts, my little shirt, and the kids are like, you know, my classmates are like, oh my God, were you in an accident? What happened to you? And I just sat there. And so when he roll called, I stood up on the bleachers. And he looked at me, because I stood up. That's who stands up during roll call, right? So I stood up and I looked at him. And he looked up and down, and he looked straight in my eyes. And literally, I felt like I was screaming at him, do something please, right? Surely you see this. Mm -hmm. And 
he walked away. He never once asked me what happened. He never as a teacher reported anything, and he never as a bishop reported anything. So I was called in by my bishop a week later because my mom had reported to the bishop that my dad had beat me. So this is my own bishop now that I'm sitting in front of, who's my, who my dad is counselor. And he's like, Christy, I understand your dad beat you. You okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Well, your mom said that there's some other stuff going on that you would tell me about at home. And I'm like, ah, damn it. She's putting this on me? Like, I got to tell this bishop of God that my dad's sexually touching me? And I can't lie to him, right? Because he's God. He's a, a, a mouthpiece of God. So I'm like, yeah, my dad's been coming in my room at night. And he's been doing sexual things to me. Oh, Christy. I know your dad. Are you sure? You're not dreaming? Are you sure you're not dreaming that? I mean, it's happening at night. No, Bishop. I, I know. It's real. And he's like, oh, I just, I, I have a hard time with this. So I knew then, because I had already stood in front of the other bishop, that they weren't going to do anything. And with the way he reacted, I knew... I didn't even know if he would ever even talk to my dad. And literally, the mindset of ever going to the police never entered my mind because you went to your bishop. And later I found out that um, through my dad, that Bishop Anderson did t take him aside. And you know what he told my dad? You need to clean up your act. And that's all. Wow. That was his big talking to. You may or may not have an opinion on this, but how do you think a man like your dad could get the PhD, could be so into the religion that he allows you to read your scriptures, that he allows you to come to seminary? He wants his daughter to be engaged in this religion that he obviously loves, and then justify the fact that he is molesting you and your sisters and doing heinous things, mm -hmm. heinous things in the eyes of God and man mm -hmm. to his own family. What's going on in his mind? What do you think goes on in the mind of not only your dad, but also those who are around him, like the Bishop Anderson, who says, clean up your act and just leaves it as that. No, nah, he couldn't have done it. How, how, are, how are they handling this disparity between their evil actions and the holiness and righteousness of the church. It's hard for me to try to figure that out. Because I honestly, to me, these, these bishops, you know, to me they were good men. Mm -hmm. You know, like in any other thing, I, I thought that they were just good people. Um, but I, 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 I feel like they were misguided, mm -hmm. you know. But I also felt like they were following instructions on what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether they wanted to or not, I think they were being told, you know, by the church what the instruction was to how to handle things. In my own mind, my father, how he was able to do that, I think my dad's a narcissist. I think he had a very big idea of who he was. Um, he said he got his doctor's degree for the very reason so that people would listen to him, you know. 
And so um, he married my mom because she was beautiful and it made him look good, you know. So as kids, we always had to be this persona that you met um, to the world because these are my children. These are my property. These are, you know, we weren't looked at literally as children like, Daddy, you're my dad. You love me. You're going to look after me. You're actually the monster that need we need protection from. How he did that in his brain, all I can come up with is the narcissism, but he had some really weird ideas when it came to, um, like, God the Father and Mary. You know, he, he gave several talks, and I remember one gentleman later, years later, told me it really bothered him every time my dad talked about it. But my dad frequently in his talks he would give as a high council member or wherever would bring up the fact that God the Father... Um, how Jesus was the literal son of God and Mary, and that there was only one way he knew of to get pregnant. So he, in his mind, believed that God the Father, not an overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, but that God the Father had sex with Mary, literally his own daughter, and created Jesus which was propagated by McConkie and it was talked about by young, Brigham Young and so your dad wasn't far off from the document at that time. And there was a lot of weirdos that taught, uh, if you saw who taught with my dad at BYU, mm. there's some guy with the last name of Aldris mm. or, mm. and he was one of his colleagues there that he wow. taught with. So there's some people there that had some really weird ideas, yeah. you know, that took things very literally and like their interpretation of things. and. So I, I think my dad, you know, with him calling me sis, yeah, you know what I mean? That was always weird to me. Um, we'll get to what yeah. that means in a while, but, sis remark. Yeah, so. Um, the, the thing that is just so disgusting is that God the Father created, uh, created Mary, and then he had sex with her. So, according to my dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. according and, to And dad. some of the other people in the church, the yeah. leaders. So, yeah, so that's the only thing that I could equate to, like, why he felt like he could do what he did to me and my sisters, you know. So, um, yeah, so it, you know, after he did the beatings and I talked to my bishop and knew nothing was going to happen, I turned 16. And uh, for a gift, I got my own bedroom. And, you know, we weren't allowed to have locks on our doors. So during that time, when I would take a bath in the bathroom, we had these fogged windows, um, and it faced our pool out in the back. Well, I, I caught my dad twice looking at me while I was taking a bath. One is he had etched a thing through the window so he could see in me taking the bath. The other time is I caught him through the doorknob that was always kind of broken and hanging there. And I caught him looking at me. And so I wouldn't take any more baths. I did showers only upstairs after that. And then he, his increase uh, in coming in my room at night um, got more so. So that this time it got even more uh, physical what he was doing with me because he had me all to himself. So I tried um, since... You know, I tried gaining a lot of weight because he didn't like people that were overweight. Mm. So I gained like 40 pounds mm. and started gaining a lot of weight. And he left me alone for a little while, but then that didn't work. 
So then I thought, okay, I wake up and he's touching me. So, okay, in my head, I'm going to dress in not only a pair of pants and a sweatshirt, but I'm going to dress with pajamas, a robe. I'm going to dress with this, like socks. Like I literally dress like a hood, you know, anything I could. I dress like this big country man or, you know, like I'm out in the wilderness trying to keep warm. And I would sleep up against my wall so that in the night he would have, I would wake up by him undressing me. So that, that was a way that worked for me for a little while, mm. you know, but then that got to be too hot. Mm. And so I was trying always, like, how could I make this stop, you know, but I couldn't. And I finally remember after one of the, the yuckiest times I had with him, um, after he left my room, I got on my, my knees and I prayed the hardest prayer I'd ever prayed in my life. And I said, Heavenly Father, please don't let this be real. I don't want this to be real. Please don't let this be happening. You know, and and I just, in my mind, decided at that very point that God was going to answer my prayer and that I, when it started still happening, I was able to disassociate it and not even think about it. So at that point, I was off in another world. You know, because I could no longer dress heavily. I could never, I couldn't keep making myself sick. I couldn't keep gaining weight. I kind of just gave into it and decided in my mind I would be in another realm while it would happen because, you know. All sounds very uh, normal. It does now. Yeah. So that's how I survived. And then the last time my dad touched me, I was a senior in high school. And I was 18, and he came into my bedroom. And he would, he grabbed onto my boobs and just shook them really hard and was going to town on them. And he's like, oh, it's time for breakfast. And was just, yeah, oh, okay. And that was the last time I remember. And, you know, he also did it in the car. Like when we were in the car, he'd put his arm around me, you know, and touch my boob and leave it there, hold it. And my mom sat right next and watched. She knew what was going on. He would have me in the front seat with him in our white station wagon. And so he became more, bla you know, brazen and blatant about it. Um, so, you know, and then my middle sister, Corey, started acting out uh, very sexually with guys. Um, and then I left um, on my mission. Now, what happened when I said my sister attempted suicide um, when she got back into the home, right, to mm -hmm. back home, she told one of her friends at school what my dad was doing to her. Her friend told somebody, and social services was contacted and went in, and this is all while I'm on my mission, so I had no idea. So social services went and met with uh, my sister, Corey, and got her story. My brother, Kyle, and Kathy were called in. And Kathy at the time was like, I don't know, I don't think he's touching me. And they're like, well, what do you wear at night? You know, what do you dress like at home? You know, very specific questions because Corey was always dressing very provocatively. Mm. We weren't allowed to wear bikinis, but Corey was, mm. you know. Mm. There was a lot of stuff going on that was very different from the rest of us girls. Mm. So that all went on, but nothing happened with that. So then I came home from my mission, so. 
did you ever um, feel like um, when you were going out with regular guys dating? You, you mentioned that you had some. You dated with different guys. You went on. Right. Was did you were you able to block all that out? Were mm -hmm. you able to have normal, you know, kiss guys? Yeah. I mean, the first time I, I was at a New Year's Eve dance and this one guy French kissed me, I almost threw up because I was like, people, ew, I don't need your tongue in my mouth. Like, it freaked normal, me normal out. Normal reaction to the first Yeah, the first time. Yeah. But it, that, that was funny. But no, I literally, in my mind, the way I survived it was that I, what is the word, Kim? Carp Compartmentalized? Yeah, I have a problem with that word. But I was able to, like, put this over here and separated. I never blamed myself for what was going on. Um, it was just my body. And then this was my time. So I dated and I dated some great guys and, you know, was still looking for the one that I was going to marry. And, you know. You guys, I'm a witness to this um, on the side that was the normal side of your life. Because seriously, when I saw a picture last night at the event, of you when you were younger with your missionary tag. And I think I remember that, that picture from somewhere else. They may have put it up in the ward house or something somewhere and I saw it. Well, but literally she had the persona of Molly Mormon, we're wheat grinding family that, uh, <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with us yeah. at all. Dad's CES, I mean, and you carried that. Now, Corey didn't carry that. Corey did not carry that at all. Wow. She. Corey, to this day, with what's happened to her, in fact, when she we found out she was pregnant. Now, at this point in the conversation, some of you may be saying, "Well, you know, this is your story, and wow, it you know, you're just, I mean, this is the way the the world works, as screwed up as we are. You're making this up. You wanna you wanna hurt the church, and uh, all the things that people say when a story comes out like this." Just like when you you were going to the bishops, oh, come on, Christy, your dad wouldn't do that. And you're probably, some of you are saying that in your mind. Did this really happen? Well, the bomb drop comes with this documentary that you have to see. The name of it is? Glass Temples. Glass Temples. How? And we're going to talk about that in our next segment, in our final segment together. But how can people watch this? I know, is it going to be shown in Australia soon? Yeah, what it is is it's been shown in several film festivals. Okay. Um, the you know when you make a film, I guess you send it out to these film festivals, and then they eventually, hopefully, make it into regular theaters. Um, so it started out as kind of like a docu series where they wanted it to be larger, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe on Netflix, Hulu, something where you could see several hours of mm -hmm. you know how it builds. Um, but for this right now, they chose Glass Temples to put it in a short film which is like 30 minutes long um, and so what was your question my question is how can people see it well right now with it being shown in film festivals they're very yeah so um, I'm sure we're gonna know soon they right now they're showing it where there's like the event last night uh, which surrounds other help groups where people can go because it is a heavy film yeah and people that are also victims need a place to, to talk to somebody, mm -hmm. you know, so they were very beautiful in providing all that mm -hmm. when they showed that. And I'm hoping that we can get it to Orange County, California, mm -hmm. in the heart of a lot of this stuff, mm -hmm. um, where it can be shown there as well. So 
I know glasstemples.net is the website, okay. and I'm hoping that at a future time that everybody will be able to see it, whether it's in a theater or they'll be able to see it on the website. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think it's important. It's very oh, important to see Vitally it. important. Yeah. And the reason it's important in conjunction with what I just said about the skeptics is can you tell us what happens in Glass Temples in terms of your dad? Yeah. Uh, which part? Like the letters and the. Well, my dad. Yeah, when 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 my mom died. Well, the thing is, my dad never. Um, he was excommunicated. So and finally. He, yeah, when I was twenty three, and he supposedly confessed. You know, in the church court. Mm. Now the state president wasn't going to do anything. Mm. He told my brother Kevin, mm. "We don't think we're going to excommunicate him." My mom called the prophet. Whoa. Which was Ezra Taft Benson at the time. Mm. He, or someone from his office, called our home and told my mom he will be excommunicated. Mm. So anyway, then he got rebaptized, mm. like within a year, I think. My mom divorced him. He married one of his students. When he got rebaptized, one of his students. When he got rebaptized, they put an annotation on his record that he's a danger to children. So then him and his new wife take off for Utah. Right? Mm. Lehigh, Utah, mm. where they put my dad on the high council, wow. even with his annotation. So all this stuff's going on, um, and my dad's got this new life. We're left behind. And um, How old was Kathy when he... He left? Yeah. I think she was like 13 or 14. Wow. So she, yeah, it had, it had been a long time. Uh, Kim was on his mission. In fact, when Kim went on his mission, all this came out. He has his own story about how he was contacted by his mission president because he's out in the jungles of Guatemala. Wow. So they have to send somebody out there to get him to get to a phone, you know, where his mission president lets him know what's going on. And then by the time Kim gets home from his mission, my dad's been excommunicated. He's now remarried. And we're living in a different city, and our whole family dynamics has changed. And my dad had the audacity to have him and his wife send Kim Book of Mormons with their testimony in it oh. for Kim to pass out the oh. El Libro de Mormon. Wow. Your dad sent letters to the three girls. Yeah, my dad sent us letters uh, uh, admitting to what he did. We saw the, you see these letters in the, in the film. film. So my dad's getting old and he uh, wanted to see us um, after my mom died and my brother died. And then he sent us letters saying, um, several years, you know, for several years I molested you. Um, I don't blame you. You were completely innocent. It was all my fault. I take full responsibility. You know, thank you for turning me into President Woodhouse. I was forced to change and thank you so much, I love you with all my soul, or whatever, you know. And so I was like, oh, well, that's a nice letter. I was like, oh, you know, maybe he's going to die soon, because usually that's kind of a death letter, right? Mm -hmm. Deathbed letter. So then Kathy opens up her letter, and it's literally verbatim, handwritten, mm -hmm. exact same words. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, are you serious? So then we read Corey's, and hers is basically the same mm -hmm. thing, except... You know, he says with her, I love you with all my heart. Like it was more this professive love. And I'm sorry what I did to you. And just a little bit of the wording was different that we caught. 
And so, but he made this, these full confessions, you know, basically what he could in the letters. So that prompted a visit to Utah. Which is in the film. Yeah, and originally my brother Kevin and Kim and Kathy and I had planned to visit my dad after my mom died and then Kevin died um, unexpectedly five months later after my mom did. And so that made us even more stronger and more determined to go meet with my dad. Mm -hmm. One, because he invited us, and two, we wanted some other answers, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. Kevin never got those answers. Mm -hmm. And so um, the whole film is, you know, we asked, Kim had gone up to the house and asked my dad, look, with, in our visit, we have a camera crew. Do you mind if we film our visit with you so we can document it? Mm -hmm. And my dad's like, absolutely, come on in. Mm -hmm. Everybody, come on in. He was more than happy. Mm -hmm. There's his ego, right? Yeah. Thinking, oh, he's going to be this pitiful soul, mm -hmm. old now, shaky. Oh, I'm going to be on film as mm -hmm. confessing what I've done, my forgiveness. It'll be on LDS.org. You know what I mean? One of those things. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking he's thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kim handled it so well. You all handled it so well with him. And uh, we're going to talk in our next segment about the film. We're going to talk about the revelations that came out in that. I want to talk to you about the phone call, which was just the most stunning phone call. And then the, uh, the inclusion of a talk by uh, Richard uh, G. Scott. G. Scott, which will make you vomit. When you watch the film, it is really a powerful piece. And then how your brother calls your dad out. I mean, right there. God and he bless calls him. the police. Mm -hmm. And But I also, we're going to wrap right now up with, I noticed Corey and you, that Corey is bearing some, it just looks like to me, as an observer, some hatred in her life for him still. But I saw you hug your dad when you walked in the door. Yeah. And I saw... I, I see some definite hurt in you, but I also saw some kind of forgiveness in you. Mm -hmm. To hug a man that, whoa, that would do that to you. And um, that is remarkable. So I would want to start off and talk about how that happens in your life. If you can speak for Corey, her, her heart, uh, and then tell us about Kathy okay. and what's happening with her. Um, so grateful for you sharing all this. Thanks. My sister from way back. <laughs> we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.